0: Jeremiah chapter 31 we have spent a lot of time in Jeremiah 31 and we're going to continue to do that for the next couple of weeks possibly two more counting this one and possibly a third and the reason is that uh, there is such a richness very nice fan but it's blowing everything there on my stage there's a tremendous richness in this particular chapter of Jeremiah that I don't want to go through it too fast I believe there's a lot of things that we as believers in Jesus Christ need to focus our attention upon not only from the prophetic standpoint which of course is primary because the book of Jeremiah is a prophetic book but uh, because of the richness of the applicable material in, the, in, in this great chapter of Jeremiah We pick up actually in verse 20 now and and we'll tie it together to the last couple of verses that we studied last time, verses 19 and 18. But um, the thought is to the fact that Israel has, of course, disobeyed the Lord and uh, has come now to realize it has disobeyed god and has remorse in his heart and repentance because of their sin you know that that is the goal of god's chastening us is that we come to repentance that we come to realize our sin and even we as Christians, you know, we falter and fail. We don't have to, but because we're human, we do. And so the Lord is so gracious. And that's the idea that we need to understand in these words that we read here tonight in verses 20 through 22. Let me read them to you and then let's, let's take a moment to pray. God is speaking through Jeremiah and he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these, your cities. How long will you get about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall encompass a man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to open our Bibles, open your word to this chapter of Scripture that is such a rich and full chapter of grace, mercy, love, Kindness, fatherly kindness as we could ever see in any, pack, in, in any portion of, of, of your word and we thank you Lord for giving us this opportunity Lord to sit at your feet together we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit and I also ask Father For the blessing of your touch upon our hearts. In our times of struggle and pain. When we find ourselves in confusion. Or when we find ourselves in in struggle with things that we know the enemy is is certainly uh, a part of. In causing us to look away from you. Or in causing us to do things that we would not normally do if, if we were certainly in tune with you. I pray we learn a lot from you this evening. Give us, Lord, that wisdom to understand and to know what your word says to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. There is one great aspect of God's character that I want to begin and end with tonight. And that is God's grand attribute of His love. When it comes to God's love for His own special people, Israel, some people tend to lose sight of how rich that love is, simply because they find it inconceivable that the Lord should remain patient with a people that have been so rebellious toward and against the one who created them to be a light to the world on his behalf. We would say, why God? Are you so patient with Israel? Why God are you so forgiving? I think of the things that Isaiah said, that the Lord said through Isaiah in Isaiah 49 verse 3, and He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He calls Israel His servant. and Later on in verse 6 of Isaiah 49, He says, Indeed, He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now you need to understand that while this passage in verse 6 of Isaiah 49 is also applicable to Jesus the Messiah, it is nonetheless speaking about Israel. For later on in Isaiah 60 verse 3, the Lord says, The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that is the rising of Israel from the ashes of their rebelliousness and sin. The fact that the Lord also chose Israel as His means of sanctifying the earth is clearly seen in His choosing them to destroy the Canaanites upon entering the land of Israel, or I should say the promised land, which would later become Israel. They were to be set apart, in other words, for God's special use. They were to be holy, in other words. Holy. Means to be set apart for God. And they were to be his treasured possession. As he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all peoples but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and what is even more telling about his love for his people Israel is that he chooses to be faithful in this for eternity. In other words, he chooses to be faithful endlessly to Israel. Without end. Eternally. Look at verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. A thousand generations, folks, means, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a phrase to say for a long, 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 long time. And so it's really just that which is eternity for us. A thousand generations, who counts them? He will not be slack with him who hates him. And he repays those who hate him to their uh, their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. And, And really what he's saying is, look, I'm going to take care of those people who hate me and I hate you. But you need to love me. And you need to serve me because I have chosen you. I've given you life. I'm God you're not I'm a god of, of of justice and righteousness and truth, but I love you and I want you to love me. so we begin this chapter with the words of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel and I said I say we began this chapter which means when we studied the first part of chapter 31. And we learn in verse 3 that the Lord has appeared of of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I want you to notice again what kind of love or to what extent that love is. And he says, it's an everlasting love. And we drilled it over and over again when we studied this a couple of weeks ago. It is an everlasting love. It is eternal. It is for ever. Therefore, with loving kindness I've drawn you. That deep love the Lord has for his people is seen in his response to the outward demonstration of remorse over sin and cries to God to restore them, because He was their God. We read this last time in verses 18 and 19, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself, You have chastised me, and I was chastised, like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for You are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. A sign of shame. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. But God sees Ephraim, and remember that Ephraim really represents Israel. God sees Israel in his state of confusion and in that state of distress And God responds in verse 20. And listen how He does so. He does so with two questions. Is he from my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. You might have children that have gone astray, wayward, off they went, doing their own thing. We wonder, are they still our dear sons and daughters? Are they still the pleasant child we had when they were young and growing up? They may not be that pleasant child at the moment, and they may not be dear. At the moment. But God says though I spoke against him. I earnestly remember him still. My heart yearns for him. Like any parent. Down deep inside. Actually better than any parent. Better than any parent because God is without sin. God is perfect in all of his ways. Yet he he yearns for his children. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Now, understand this about this passage. There is an implication to the questions asked by God here. The questions imply a negative answer. Well, not really. Who would think that one so unfaithful as Ephraim to his heavenly father should be still regarded as a dear son or a pleasant child? He wasn't in respect to his sin. He wasn't a dear child, he wasn't a pleasant child in regard to his sin or in respect to his sin. But by the virtue of God's everlasting love shown in Ephraim's repentance, he is immediately welcomed as God's son. But understand that the Lord was anticipating his return. Because I don't want you to think that God chooses To have mercy on him because of what Ephraim does. That would be like saying Ephraim saved himself by just repenting. You see, there is a theological lesson here to be learned, it is a lesson that deals with something called, in theology, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T for those who like to write everything out. Prevenient Grace. A.W. Tozer defines prevenient grace in his book, The Pursuit of God. And I would recommend The Pursuit of God to everybody. As a matter of fact, I recommend the whole library of A.W. Tozer to you. But in The Pursuit of God, this is what he says. He says, Christian theology teaches the doctrine of prevenient grace which briefly stated means that before man can seek god god must first have sought the man so that's kind of the easy answer to the to the question what is prevenient grace before man can seek god god must first have sought the man. Before a sinful man can think a right thought of God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him. Time and again we say, we don't save ourselves, God saves us. God works the whole thing out. To the extent that He is the one who, gives, who grants us as a gift repentance, He grants us faith. All of that comes from God, not from us. So there is an understanding then, that before a sinful man can think anything right about God, there has already been a work done by God in that person's life. One verse of Scripture that clarifies this theological thought is Jesus' statement in John 6, 44. In John six forty four, Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. There is a drawing that God has done, and then he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. God draws us. God does everything to bring everything into place so that we can see him and then say, that's what we need. That's who we need. This is what I need to do. But it is in the story of the prodigal son that the spiritual picture is made clear in our hearts of what we're speaking of tonight. In Luke 15 verse 20 in the story of the prodigal son Jesus said and he arose and came to his father but notice this next phrase but when he was still a great way off when he was still a great way off what does that tell you? When he was still a sinner when he he was still as far away from his home as far away from his loving father as he was his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. What you have to bring into, in, into, into light of the story and the implication is that somewhere down the line, that father taught that son everything he needed to know before he became rebellious and left. And whatever had been in light in him from that point on was something that arose in him when he came home. And the Father expected it in anticipation. You see, one theologian has said, God is always previous. By the way, that's where you get the word provenient, from the word previous. God is always previous. This, of course, is where we get that word, provenient. It is in God's previous or provenient drawing that He takes from us every trace or hint of credit for the act of coming to Him takes all the credit away from us. Because God was previous to it all. God did all the work before we got there. That's the wonderful God that we serve tonight. God did everything previous to bring us to the place of knowing Him. And to knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. The Lord said in verse 20, Therefore my heart yearns, I'm talking about Jeremiah 31, verse 20. Therefore my heart yearns for Him. Have you, have you ever yearned for something? Have you ever yearned for a person that you love? Have you ever yearned for your children? You haven't seen them in, t- in some amount of time and you just yearn to see them? Sometimes yearning hurts. Doesn't it? I'm asking. Sometimes yearning hurts, it's painful to us. And God yearns for us when we're astray, when we've gone off the deep end, when we've gone so far away that we think God doesn't care. God doesn't care. I'm here to tell you, God cares. God cares about you. He cares about you. He says, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. (laughs) God knew, didn't he? He already knew. It It was no surprise to him. Because he's previous to everything we do. The response to God's mercy is our pursuit. Of the living God. The response to God's mercy. When God shows us mercy, folks. We're pursuing Him now. Psalm 42. Turn there, please. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? This is a man who's crying out because he is is responding to the mercy that God has shown him. As the deer pants for the water brooks, when do deer pant? When they're being chased. Most of the time there's these idyllic scenes of deer out in the forest eating leaves, grass or whatever they eat. They're not running until what? Until a predator comes. Or our hunters. Some of our hunters here like deer, you know. Them hunters come in and deer go. They like to get shot at. Or they like some animal coming and jumping and pouncing on them. So they run and run and run, they pant after the water brook, looking for a time to stop and just to drink some water. Isn't that us, sometimes in the lives that we live, in this this earth, in this world? The enemy's coming after us, after us, after us, and we're panting for God. But folks, we need to be pursuing God every moment, every moment of our lives, until He comes for us. And so as the Jews started for Babylon, as they're on their way to Babylon, the Lord instructed them to remember the roads and to set up markers along the route for the people would use those same roads to return to their land. This is verses 21 and 22 now of Jeremiah 31. Set up signposts, God says. Set up signposts. Make landmarks on your way to Babylon. Set them up so that you can remember how to get back. Set your heart toward the highway. The highway is the safe way, folks. I'm not talking about the grocery store. The highway is the safe way. You get off the highway, you're in trouble. So set landmarks. Set signposts. Set your heart there. The way in which you went. And then he says, Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Hadn't they played the harlot and yet he calls them the virgin of Israel? Again, it is God's heart toward them. It is God's forgiveness of them. And he says, how long will you get about, oh, you backsliding daughter? You know, that's, that's like saying, you know, why do you keep going this way, that way, this way, that way, here and there and everywhere? in your backsliding. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. We'll get to that one in a moment. That's a toughie. So here is, you know, God's saying, make signposts, make landmarks. I believe it was Hansel and Gretel who left breadcrumbs to find their way home. Is that right? That doesn't always work, does it? Always somebody going back there eating all the breadcrumbs and you lose your way. Well, Israel needed to be a little smarter than that. They needed to listen to what God had to say. God said, "Set, set signposts, make landmarks. And he tells them, set your heart toward the highway. Can I give you a quick little lesson on the highway? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. I'm the highway. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Set your heart on the highway. Set your heart on Jesus well, getting back to the, the Jews and uh, the Israelites here one reason why the Lord has, set the, has, has them set their heart toward the highway is that whenever he has confronted them in the past whenever he has confronted them in the past they would go about seeking after human help how long will you go about here and there in other words how long will you gad about oh you backsliding Israel oh you backsliding daughter What he's saying in effect is, how long will you go about here and there wavering and wandering before you come to me? You've already backslid, but now you're going here and there. You're going to Egypt, you're going here with other people. You're not coming to me. You see, he tells them that in Jeremiah. Chapter 2 verse 18. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Or later on in chapter 2, verse 36, why do you gad about so much to change your way? In other words, why do you go here and there to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as as you were ashamed of Assyria. You're, You're going to go in all of these directions, but it's not going to be any good. It's not going to fulfill what you really need to have fulfilled in your life. Folks, come back to me. Why not just return to me right away? Folks, think about that in your own life. I think we've all made those mistakes where we've, you know, backslidden from the Lord, and then all of a sudden we go around looking, you know, for ways to make ourselves feel better, but we haven't come back to God yet. And there's a time when you need to get, give up on all these other little side streets and get back on the highway with Christ and get your life right with Him. Because He's saying, come back to me, I haven't left you, you're the one leaving me. I'm glad that someone once said that the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven who keeps hounding us until we get it right. But it's the second phrase. The second phrase in verse 22 For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall encompass a man. Now, this is a verse that some commentators say is the most difficult passage to understand in the book of Jeremiah. And I agree. Having spent just time just looking at this thing, I said, okay, let's look at it. Let's look at every word. Let's look at everything that we can. Why do some people say this or that about this particular verse? Well, let me tell you what a few people say. Because there are about, well, there's a whole bunch of ways of trying to interpret this. Uh, It is believed by some that the woman is Israel, who encompasses or receives the Lord, called a man as a nation because of the word encompass means roundabout while the lord is the focus of course the wording in the hebrew points to a woman singularly not really using a term that would be corporately you know a nation so that's probably not the right interpretation others believe that the woman being israel is seeking or wooing her husband uh, the lord and and justify this because of the first phrase in the passage the first phrase says for the lord has created a new thing in the earth which means it is an unprecedented event something that's never happened you know god has always pursued israel in a sense but israel which had been a harlot is now called a virgin and that's new and so they think well this is the woman is israel and and she's now wooing, but I don't see wooing in the word encompass in, in the Hebrew, because it has a lot of different connotations to it. But uh, wooing is not really that clear. And then there are those who say that uh, you know Israel uh, is is the woman, and and uh, uh, when they come out of uh, their uh, exile, that. Uh, the women, you know, the women are, are as, as stronger than the men. And, uh, you know, they're going to be the ones that, uh, you know, will encompass the man. Uh, and I don't know where they got that one. Uh, so, I mean, we could just go on and on. There's just all kinds of ways to look at it. But but there's others like, uh, like uh, C.I. Schofield. If you have a Schofield uh, uh, study Bible, you'll, you'll see the there in one of the notes in on this particular verse... Uh, that, uh, and, and th- this goes actually back to uh, some theologians back in, in the early, early church that believed that this verse predicted the virgin birth of the Messiah of Israel so this is what we want to kind of look at and maybe consider the new thing in the earth remember the new thing in the earth refers to the unprecedented event a new thing never happened before when, what had what never happened before? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. New thing in the earth. Well, that of course hasn't, ha- hasn't happened yet in Jeremiah's time, just, just as it didn't happen in Isaiah's time. So it is still a new thing. Isaiah mentions it in his letter, or in his book of prophecy, but uh, we're, we're trying to see if this is what Jeremiah is saying. The new thing in the earth then would refer to the unprecedented event. The use of the word created would refer to an act of divine power. We know that only God truly creates. But it isn't so much referring, and this is where you have to be very careful here because Christ isn't created. (laughs) He is the creator, the Bible teaches us. But nonetheless it refers to an act of divine power. What God brought about, created in a, a person in, in Mary, as as the virgin, then all of a sudden she has a child, not in the natural way, but in the supernatural way. So that that's where you refer that to. And then the word woman, again, when you look at that in the Hebrew, it refers to an individual, not so much an Asian and, and man then the word man can still be used properly for God. For example, Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born. Now, you know, those who would argue that this is the case would say, well, it doesn't say man in the verse, but, you know, a child does grow up to be a man, and that's the same connotation. A child who is a child born physically will become a man. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, and the word son again would give that same connotation. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know who that is. That's Messiah. If you go back a couple of chapters to chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14, what I just quoted to you a little bit. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's a sign, an unprecedented event, something that's never happened. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So, at this point, after reading all of the different things, I I have no problem with this particular view. For as we shall see in the next passage, these verses may very well bear this out. So just hold on to that thought. We haven't confirmed this yet or anything. Just want you to hold on to the thought because we're all together in this. Wanting do you understand this? So in verse 23 down to verse thir- uh, 26, it goes on, and the Lord does, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I bring back their captivity, the Lord bless you, O home of justice. And mountain of holiness. So we'd have to figure that's that's speaking about Zion, which is Jerusalem. And there shall dwell in Judah itself, and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the the weary soul, or, or brought satisfaction to the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. And then Jeremiah in verse 26 says, And after this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Now, some have, some have thought that that might be the Lord because they don't, you know, there's no punctuation in the Hebrew that, that would lend you to believe that God speaks and then. So you have to look at other issues in the Hebrew. But uh, God doesn't sleep. See, that's the thing. So evidently it has to be Jeremiah. Because he's the prophet that the, the prophecy is coming through. So he says, after this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. Please remember that last phrase, sweet to me. The people will once again call upon the Lord to bless the holy city of Jerusalem. He's going to bring them out of captivity, bring them back to their, their, their homes because they've left the signposts and, and the landmarks. He's going to bring them on the highway right back safely. And what they once used to say about the city of, of Zion, they're going to say again, The Lord bless you, O home in, of justice and mountain of holiness. It will be the capital of the world. The city where Christ establishes his seat of government on the earth. Remember we read from Isaiah 9 6 The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, he's going to rule and reign in Jerusalem. Where does his feet land when he comes back? The Mount of Olives. Where's that? In Jerusalem. So we're beginning to see something take place here. God is making it very clear. I'm bringing justice back to my city. Folks, this is why Jerusalem is so key in world politics today. You know, the big deal really is not Washington or Moscow or Tehran, Iran... Or Baghdad, Iraq, they have their, they have their uh, importance. Okay, all of them. But the most important city in all the world is Jerusalem. And it is the one city that people want to divide today. And God says, "My cities, my city is not up for division." because when you divide it I'm coming after you I think I don't want to mess with God because that's his city I hate to say it we've got people in our own country not only just this administration but even the previous one that were saying let's divide for peace let's divide the city Please read the Bible, Mr. President. I know that you don't want to do that. Please read God's Word. Psalm 122, verses 5 through 9, it says, For thrones are set there for judgment. The thrones of the house of David. This is what we're speaking of. Pray, it says, for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, Peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now here's the thing. The Jews that miss Christ, the Jews that miss Jesus, they want peace. That's part of the process of what's going on today in the the last days. They want peace. And they're going to accept peace from anybody that will give it to them. What they failed to mention, or what they failed to learn actually, in Christ's coming was that Jesus as Messiah is the Prince of Peace. And the only way Jerusalem will have peace is when Jesus comes back into the city itself. That's when there will be peace in Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 it says, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. That doesn't happen when the Jews come back into the land and back into the city. It happens when Jesus goes through the eastern gate and He sets up His kingdom in Jerusalem. His earthly kingdom His millennial kingdom. His thousand year kingdom when he goes in there. Can anybody tell me, is there a Jerusalem today? Can you tell me, is there a Jerusalem today? Yes, there is, isn't there? Is there a wall surrounding the city? There is. Is there a gate that Jesus is going to go through? Yeah, but it's closed in. It's just, it's just like the world. To close in everything that God says I am going to do. But you know what? Rock can't keep Jesus out of the city of Jerusalem. Because he's the rock. And he's going to destroy that wall. And he's going to go in. Yeah, you can clap. I love it. That's what's going to happen, folks. That's what's going to happen. So instead of Judah being a target for cursing now, Getting back to our text, instead of Judah being a target for cursing in the future, as she became by the way, I gotta stop here. That was good that was good clapping. And you guys go to ball games where all these guys beat each other up and everything, and you know, man, oh man. That's better. All right, all right, there you go. Whistling. That counts, it's fair, you know. Man, I mean, isn't Jesus great? You know, we're not gonna see him on the Mount of Olives. Man, we're going to go, ah, you know. Jesus is here. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, getting back to this place. I don't have too much time. Uh, instead of Judah being now a target for cursing in the future. Because that's what they were. They were, a, hiss, you know, the hissing that we talked about, it was a curse. People were saying, man, this, this is a cursed nation. But instead of being a target now for cursing in the future, as she became, uh, because of the uh, Babylonian exile, she would be a subject now of blessing. She will be a blessing again. So she would become a place where righteousness will dwell. A holy hill. Okay, one other thought before we move on from verse 23. Some have considered that the usage of the word speech there, and let's look at that real quickly here. It says in verse 23, "...they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities." The speech itself is the statement, the Lord bless you, O home of justice and, and, and mountain of holiness. But some, have, some believe that the word speech refers to the Hebrew language being revived. Because at one time, and we know this, one time it was considered a dead language. Since only scholars used it. Even by the time of Jesus, only the scholars used the Hebrew language. What languages did Jesus use? Well, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Well, now Jesus spoke Hebrew too. We know that. Well, he speaks every language, you know. He's really good. He better. (laughs) But the people only spoke Greek and and Aramaic. The common people. They didn't speak Hebrew. And so uh, these were the common languages of the time. Of course, the Romans had Latin. So, you know, we know the... the, the, uh, Languages that were used uh, on, the, on that decree that was on the cross. But a miracle occurred. A real miracle. A real mil- a miracle took place. It took place a few years before the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. And the miracle was that the language that was lost... The true Hebrew language was was found and is now the official language of modern Israel. Now they have a modern Hebrew language and there's still, the, still the classical Hebrew, uh, the biblical Hebrew language, but that language is has now become the language of the people. And uh, so that, that really... Took place. And, and there's a verse of scripture, and I wanted to mention this because of Zephaniah chapter 3. Not Zechariah, but Zephaniah. Z E P H A N I A H. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. This is a very important verse because it is a fulfillment. It has been fulfilled. For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. That will be the language that we will know when Jesus is reigning in the millennial kingdom so now with that in mind I just just want to give that out as for verse 24 now the Lord said that when the people returned to the land they would be farmers we think wow farmers you know there is uh, is so much there is such a wealth of intellect in Israel today just today I mean, these guys could go into any kind of industry. They they can go into anything and be prosperous at it. As a matter of fact, much of the world, though it is not grateful for what many Jewish uh, uh, scholars and and uh, scientists and all you know, philosophers and all these other things have done for the you know for the world, they don't get a lot of credit for it. But they have done a tremendous amount of things for for our you know modern age and whatnot. But um, when they went into the land, after, of course, taking care of business because people were trying to destroy Israel right away, uh, they came and became farmers, just as the scripture says. And you can understand that thought when they, you know, when they returned from Babylonian captivity, but in 1948, when they returned a second time, they remained farmers. They they are, by the way, the third leading exporter of fruit in the world, one of the leading exporters of flowers to all of the world, And, and just a number of other things that they export. I mean, it's incredible. And most of it is agricultural. And, and that's, that's taking place today. So, in fact, Israel could, could make more money by becoming an industrial nation if it wanted to, but, but they're so in love with the land that God had given them that many just want to work the land as farmers. And so that's something we see here already in our text. And then in verses 25 and 26, let's look at it again. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul, And after this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. The Lord will meet the needs of the weary and the sorrowful. He will refresh and He will give rest to anyone crushed under the weight of trial and suffering. This is His wonderful promise, not just to Israel, but to each and every one of us the promise itself comes from Jesus' own lips and own heart. When he says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says that to us and he says that to his people he says that to anybody under the weight of the burden of sin under the weight of the burden of, of, of the pressures of this life under the attacks of the enemy he says come to me what an invitation God gives what an invitation Jesus himself gives to us and in Revelation 7, verse 17, it says, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, I look for that day. In the things we do in the ministry, we see a lot of tears. And many times we can't keep them from flowing. Within us. And I just look for that day. Because that just says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in and let's rejoice now because there's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. There's not going to be any more suffering. No more tears. But while we're here, understand this please, I've got to share this lovely thought. Years ago, I have to say 35 years ago maybe, (laughs) I sang a song. I wish I could remember all the words, but I remember singing a song that said tears are a language that God understands. Tears are a language that God understands. And that's true today as it was 35 years ago. Man, I'm old. I might be old on the outside, but when I think of how much God loves me on the inside, I feel young again. Because He sees every every tear. The Bible tells us that He bottles our tears. He bottles them. That means He cares. There's a great old hymn that says, Does Jesus care? Oh, yes, He cares. My Savior cares. You see, when we have our eyes focused on Jesus, through the fire, through the storm, through the floods, we know He's there. Please be careful not to get into that place of of saying God doesn't care because that's a selfish thought. He does care. Don't call God a liar. He does care. Because when you get through the storm, guess who got you through? He did. Guess who's there at the end? He is. Guess who's ready to start with you for the next step? He is. well we're not quite done yet so let's get done and so in considering verse 26 of our text now by the way this is it verse 26 we'll pick up here next time but in considering verse 26 of our text the hope that the people need to receive from the Lord for their much suffering is first received by the prophet in his awakening from the state that the Lord had him in to receive the message of consolation so sorely needed by Israel How many times did the prophets see the Lord in a a vision or in a dream? And that's because God put him in that state to receive all of it, to remember it, and then to project it out to the people. The Lord will always give the hope of future glory to his people. So if it was sweet to Jeremiah, it would be sweet to all of God's people. And I want you to read those words again of, of, of Jeremiah. After this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. You know, you, you wake up and you think. Well, that was an awesome experience. But what I've heard was Sweet that wasn't the experience of jeremiah back in chapter 20 or in any of the other chapters where he was really facing a lot of struggle and trial because the people weren't listening to him and he was there telling them what god was going to do and even he was was saying you know I, i can't i can't believe god's going to do this to all these you know to these people But now he's realizing, and God gives him this vision, and and gives him this dream, and and, and it it is to be projected. It was given to the people, but as he awakes at this point in time, he says, it's sweet to me. It's sweet to me. You know, he came to his people. A people of hopelessness. I mean, there was a spirit of hopelessness and despair that had gripped their hearts. And if they ever needed help, it was now. They needed help that very moment. And in that dire situation, the Lord gave His people the wonderful hope of future glory. A day was coming when the nation would be reconciled to God and restored. The promise of future glory is applicable to every generation of believers. The Lord promises an eternity of glory to all who truly believe and obey Him. And nothing could be sweeter, nothing could be sweeter than the promise of the coming Deliverer and the coming Redeemer, the Anointed One, the Messiah of Israel. What could be more sweet than that? This is one reason why I continue to consider that verse 22 may be just speaking about the first coming of Messiah. The first coming of Jesus, born to a virgin, a woman, encompassing a man. you know that he came to his own first Matthew ten six says but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel he tells his disciples later on in Matthew 15 verse 24 he says I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel that of course was to stir you know that was that wasn't you know he wasn't playing but he was saying I came to them first we even know that in Acts chapter 2 verse 36 Peter in his preaching said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is Messiah. And Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile or the Greek. So we began our study focusing on the love of God. Well, let's end on that same note. Turn to Zephaniah. Remember Zephaniah mentioned it? Zephaniah? Well, go to Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Now remember that verse 9 is where you have that verse about the, re- the reestablishment of the language. But in verse 17 of Zephaniah chapter 3, it says, The Lord your God, in your midst, the mighty one will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. And I love this portion of the scripture. It says, he will quiet you with his love. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I can't wait to hear Jesus sing. I mean, I enjoy it when you guys sing, for the most part. You guys don't even want to hear me sing right now. No voice. But I wonder what it's going to sound like when he rejoices. So I'm looking forward to one of those worship times when he's among us. We're worshiping him. But then he rejoices. I wonder what he's going to say. But listen to verse 18. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly. For among you to whom its reproach is a burden... Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame, gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were where they were put to shame. At that time I will bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. In these last days, Israel is not seen the days we're living in Israel is not seen in the eyes of the world with praise and fame. As a matter of fact, they have more enemies than they have friends. Israel has more enemies than they have friends. But because of God's steadfast love, Israel will continue to have the hope of future glory because Messiah will come on their behalf. Praise the Lord for that. And I leave you... The statement by the apostle paul in romans chapter 8 you might have had a hard time finding zephaniah but you shouldn't have a hard time finding romans romans chapter 8 verses 35 to 39 because i want you to see how powerful and how great the love of god is and the love of christ paul says who shall separate us from the love of christ if we are truly born again of the Spirit of God, if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can and who shall separate us? Shall tribulation? If we face tribulation, that's not going to separate us. Distress? Listen, we'll be distressed, but it won't separate us from the love of God and Christ. Persecution? We have brothers and sisters today who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, some dying for their faith. Has it separated them? Not at all. Famine, nakedness, peril or sword, the things that Paul himself went through as as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, as it is written, for your sakes we're killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. That's the perspective that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to have. In those things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That is what motivates us is Christ's love for us. To stand where others will not stand. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. You know, we could stop the list right there. You're either dead or you're alive. Right? Amen? I don't I mean I don't want you dead in a life here like a life cuz your heart's beating but you're asleep and so dead to me no neither death nor life so that I'm, that pretty much encompasses everything but he goes on neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come that pretty much takes care of everything too nor height nor depth nor any other created thing which means not even you shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Through Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that picture is about Messiah. Because they needed to know their Redeemer was coming for them. Well, while they're still figuring that out, not that we're any better because we were sinners. We just happen to realize that Jesus came unto His own. His own did not receive Him. But to as many as received them, both Jew and Gentile, gave He the right to become the sons of God to as many as believe in His name. were born... Not of flesh or blood, but of the Spirit of God. If you're born of the Spirit of God, you're safe in the love of God. But you live for the love of God. Let's pray.